Uh, Growing up, there was always that one kid. There was that one kid in your neighborhood who always seemed as though he was trying to get you in trouble. That one kid that your mom never wanted you to hang around. That one kid who now is probably as an adult like out on parole or running for public office. <laughs> who, 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 was, who was just a, a terrible, terrible influence. Did you have that kid growing up? Um, if you didn't have that kid, just a warning, you might have been that kid. <laughs> just think, you might still be that kid. In my neighborhood, that kid was, was Kenny. And Kenny was always trying to pull me and my two brothers into something we should not have been doing. So, for example, Kenny, in elementary school, was, was a smoker. Yeah, and he tried, to get, he tried to get me at seven years old to smoke. Can you believe that? Which, which I did, but just one time. And my older brother found us, and he, he caught us in the woods smoking, and he went and told my mom right away. And then she did that thing where she makes you sit down and smoke like a ton of cigarettes just so you get sick of it. I know. This, this was the 80s. <laughs> where it was just lawless parenting all over the place, if any. Who was it when you were growing up? You know, we like to think that as we get older, the people of poor influence go away. But the truth is that they don't. That there are still people in your life who want to to pull you down or hold you back or or drag you into their own dysfunction. And today we're going to close out our teaching series uh, called Those People Skills by talking about those tempting people. Those people in your life who when you spend time with them, you are... You are the worst version of yourself. Or you are tempted to dive into or to indulge in something that would make you a worse version of yourself. The person God has not created you to be or longed for you to become. That's what we're going to talk about. And here's the first thing you need to know about those tempting people. That that tempting person in your life who's always trying to bring out the worst in you, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to share their shame They're trying to share their shame. Uh, You've heard the phrase, misery loves company. Well, guilt and shame loves company even more. You see this in in the first few chapters of the Christian scriptures. You see Satan depicted as a serpent, uh, and Satan has been booted out of God's family. He's been kicked out of God's kingdom for his own rebellion. And what does he try to do? He shows up in the garden, and he, he drags Eve into his shame and into his rebellion. And then Eve drags Adam into her shame and into her rebellion. The people in your life who who try to bring out the worst in you, who try to drag you down, who try to tempt you, who know all your soft spots and try to hit you in those soft spots, uh, those people will often play themselves off as being more enlightened. Hey, man, This is just what the world is doing today. Or they'll try to tell you that they are and you can be above the implications of this sordid behavior. But you're not. And the truth is that uh, the tempting person is not enlightened or exempt from the implications. They're just feeling guilty. Guilty for the choices that they've made. They have shame. Shame that they're trying to deal with in their own heart. And rather than deal with it and confront it, it's easier to justify it and pull somebody else into it. 
Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He, he talks about the influence of, of corrupting people upon your life, and he, he makes this point that, that if you allow these people undue influence in your life, it will have an impact on you. It will change you, and not for the better. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Have you heard that phrase before? That's where it comes from. It comes from the scriptures. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, you may not be fully aware that there is this type of person in your life. But, but if this person is in your life, there are always signs that you can look out for to see whether or not you have a toxic and tempting person in your life. Uh, here are some of the signs. There is a season in your life where there's a particular person in your life and it just so happens that during that season with this person, your faith is frustrated and your relationship with God is strained. Another sign is that there's a person in your life who causes strife and upsets all of the other really important relationships in your life. You enjoy this person, you, you like this person, maybe you've known them for a long time, but everybody else that you love and you know and you care about, they are bothered with them or they're bothered with you when you're with them. It ruins all the other relationships. Or another sign is just that after you spend time with a particular person, you may enjoy yourself with this person, but you don't necessarily like yourself after you've spent time with this person. They have this way of dragging you into things that make you feel as though you've compromised yourself or you've lowered your standards. You don't like who you are in the aftermath of having spent time with them. You may have a good time. They may be a real party to hang out with, but you end up going home thinking, I, I, just, I need a shower and probably to pray. <laughs> if any of those things are true, it may be that you have like a tempting, toxic person in your life who is who is pulling you down into the stuff that they're stuck in. Now, the question is, what do we do if we have one of those people in our life? Well, the scriptures are clear, but, but let me start here. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's hit your house yet or if you've noticed it, but, but there's like some, some creeping crud sickness and illness going around Houston right now. There's a lot of like coughing and runny noses and, and like just ugh, going on right up here in, in many Houstonians. I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but, but some people, when they see that there's some illness kind of floating around, uh, some people are really passive about it. Hey, let it hit me. Build up my immunity. I don't care. And then there are some people who are really vigilant about it. They're washing their hands 13 times a day. They're, they're, they're praying for a crop duster full of Purell to fly over I-10. Which are you? Are you passive about illness or vigilant about it? I'm, I'm pretty vigilant about it. I'm the kind of person who, if, if I'm walking down a hallway and someone is coming toward me and they cough or they sneeze, I, I can't believe I'm going to share this with you, I will hold my breath as I walk past them. <laughs> Pastor Matt has always got this blue face. Or like if I'm at HEB and I, I turn into a grocery aisle and there's someone in that aisle who's just like hacking up a lung, I think to myself, I don't really need bread this week. And then, <laughs> and then I go in the other direction. The reason I bring this up is this. The, the scriptures, when they talk about the presence of like tempting and toxic people, the, the scriptures are really clear. The scriptures say that, that you, should, 
you should take severe action in the presence of tempting and toxic people. I mean, the best example of that is what Jesus said to us earlier in the reading. I want to highlight some of these things because this is some really vivid, really, really strong language of Jesus. Mark chapter 9. So Jesus is talking about children, but then he's also talking about people whose faith is easily influenced by the actions of others. That's what he means by little ones, people whose, whose faith and heart are fragile. So Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her if a great millstone, a giant rock, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Oh, all right. This is not Jesus meek and mild. And you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. You will not find these words on a Christmas card. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. It's better to be a pirate than to go to hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, Jesus is using drastic language here. Here's the point. Jesus treats the threat of temptation to sin with with insane levels of seriousness. Those who would cause others to stumble and fall and be dragged away from the will of God in their life are better off dead, Jesus says. Now, he's speaking hyperbolically. He's trying to help you understand the, the, the seriousness with which you should take it. And if there are things in your life that are pulling you away from what you know to be the will of God in your life, you should take drastic action against those things. These are the words of Jesus. I could summarize it like this. Jesus wants you to treat temptation in your life with deep respect and drastic action. Now, I don't mean respect like, like you show your grandparents. I mean respect like you would show a hand grenade. You, you respect the explosive power of temptation and realize if I let this just kind of sit in my hands or linger in my lap, it is going to blow up in my face and do great harm. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's about having a healthy respect for what those who drag you into dysfunctional things can actually do to you over the long term, and it can do something to you over the long term. Being pulled just a little bit off course over the course of time pulls you a long way off course, and it's about recognizing that. Those who bring out the worst in you, they're not trying to help you. They may love you, but what they don't know, perhaps, is that they're harming you. And what Christians are called to do is when we we hear words like these from Jesus, we're called to believe him. Believe Jesus when he says that the temptation you feel to be someone other than who you were called to be and made to be is dangerous. Believe Jesus when he says that you should take the threat of sin in your life, even just a little bit of it, really, really seriously because it does horrible things to you and to the people that you love. And you should believe the stories and take heed of the scars in the life of the people around you who have fallen prey to the things that you're tempted to flirt with. Live your life with eyes open 
about the problem and the reality of sin. Don't be foolish. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, practically speaking, what do we do? If, if there is a toxic or tempting person in our life, if there's a person or a place that just kind of pulls us into stuff that we know is not good for us, not right for us, what do we do? Well, I can summarize everything the New Testament says about dealing with temptation in one word, and that one word is run. And quite literally, that's what it says in the New Testament. It doesn't mean figuratively, it doesn't mean literally like run. It's speaking again kind of hyperbolically, figuratively. It's saying that you should take drastic action to move away from that thing. Paul says this over and over in the New Testament. He says, when something is tempting you or pulling you from the life you know that you're called to live, you should run from it. You should run like you stole something. You should run like you're late for dinner. You should run like a millennial dad runs toward a craft beer festival. You should, you should run like a middle school boy runs away from deodorant. When, when something is tempting you, you should run from it. Paul talks about this with Timothy, this, this pastor in training, so to speak, that he's raising up. And he talks about the need for Timothy as a pastor, but also the people that, that Timothy is gathering around him as a pastor to understand the need to be wary of and responsible in light of sin and temptation. And he uses some interesting language, but I think it's really powerful. So this is in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, Paul says this, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Pause right there. Ancient world, first century, no indoor plumbing. There were pots in a home for multiple purposes. Some of them you cooked in, and some of them you used to deal with the food that you ate that was cooked. Are you following my lead here? Paul is saying, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Paul says this, some pots in a house are latrines. Some pots are used for cooking Thanksgiving dinner. As careful as you would be in your home of not mixing the two, be careful in your life. As careful as you would be not to mix the china with the chamber pot, you should be careful about not letting some of this temptation into your life. You would would not endure even a little bit of nastiness in your cooking. Be as careful in your living. You should run. And, and this is important for those of you who think you're the exception to the rule when it comes to temptation. And I know that there are some of you here. You think that, that you are the one who can, who can flirt with it and feel the heat of it without getting burned by it. You, you think that you can always justify the, the dark and disruptive things that you allow in your life or that you allow other people to bring in to your life. But let me say this as nicely as I can to you, and you know who you are. You are not as strong as you think you are, and you are not as immune to the effects of sin and temptation as you lead yourself on to believe. 
when you feel the pull, the push, the power, the lure of something you know to be dumb or dark coming from somebody who's trying to pull you into something, retreat. Heed the voice of the Holy Spirit. If it feels unholy, unhelpful, or just plain wrong, go in the other direction. Run from it. That's what the scriptures say. The obvious then follow-up question is this. Well, if I run from it, then what do I run toward? So, so if, I'm, if I'm seeing and feeling sin and temptation and I want to just like drop it like it's hot and run in the other direction, like where do I run? What do I go to? Excellent question. And, and this is an easier question to answer like when you're really young. When you're, when, you're, when you're a child and something is tempting you or, or, or pulling you uh, something, towards something you know that is wrong, it's easy for you to run towards a parent or towards a teacher or towards a police officer. But when you get older, one of the reasons adults are so horrible at dealing with sin and temptation is because we believe that, that all the old things to run to no longer apply to us. Well, I don't have a parent to run to. I can't really call my mom. I don't have a teacher I can run to. Who do I go to? And so you go to nobody. And you just live with it. And then it bites you. So, so this is where Jesus comes in. And, and now we're going to jump to the book of Hebrews, deep in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. We do not have a high priest, referencing Jesus, who, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. I'm going to repeat that. Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As a result, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, because Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet without sin. This should be seen as an invitation to us to draw near to his throne, to come to him, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. The scriptures say that we should run from temptation and we should rest in Christ. Run from temptation and rest in Christ. Th that line in, in that passage from Hebrews is just kind of mind-blowing to me. Jesus was tempted in his earthly life in every way in which you and I are tempted. Just think about that with a really honest mind. Think about all of the ways, all of the ways in which you are tempted. The writer of Hebrews knew what they were saying. Think about all the ways in which you are tempted, the things in which you're tempted in that you don't tell anybody about. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus was tempted in every respect as you are yet he was without sin. He didn't give in to any of it. He felt the pull of it, the push of it, the pressure of it, the power of it, and yet he never gave in to any of it. When, when my daughter Ava was, was really little and she, and she was learning how to swim, she was like three or four years old, we, we would play this game in the pool of who could hold their breath underwater the longest. And I would always win because, you know, her youth would, would sell her out and she would be able to hold her breath underwater for like 0.2 seconds. 
And then me, you know, being, being the prideful dad, I would hold myself underwater for as long as I possibly could until I literally had to come up gasping for air lest I die. Just to prove a point. Jesus, Jesus was held under the waters of temptation with more intensity than any human being that has ever lived. And yet he did not sin. The scriptures hint at this in the Gospels, but when Jesus, would, when Jesus would complete a major miracle or a significant teaching, there were hordes of people around him who were asking things of him and inviting him to things. Jesus had groupies. At least they wanted to be. There was temptation. He had Peter whispering in his ear saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe you don't actually have to die. Maybe we can devise another plan. Temptation. He, he literally had Satan, after 40 days of, of starving in the wilderness, come up to him and be like, you want some bread? All you got to do is deny your, your task, forsake your job of saving the world. He promised him bread. He promised him all the power in the universe. And all it would have taken is one word, one lie, and Jesus would have gotten himself off the hook for having to die for the sins of the world. And yet, after all of that, Jesus gave in to none of that. Here's what this means, that Jesus has an immeasurable amount of empathy and power in the face of your temptation to offer to you. He knows it, and yet he gave in to none of it which means that you can call out to him and receive understanding for the struggle and power to face it. And mature people in their faith, they know this. They know that they can call out to Jesus who has been in the place of temptation and who has faced it down and who can give us strength in the face of temptation from tempting people as well. And the way in which you do that is prayer. Prayer is the way in which you come up for air under the waters of temptation. Prayer is the, is the arm that pulls you out of temptation lest you drown in it. And, and I'm not talking about the, uh, the, the, the cute or appropriate prayers that we tend to pray um, uh, in church or in, in, in polite company. I'm talking about the prayers that go like this. Lord Jesus, help me, help me, help me, or I'm going to die. Help me, save me, give me strength. I don't know if I can say no to this or I don't like how I feel when I'm around this. Help me, help me, Jesus. And he promises, he promises to answer that prayer and to meet you with a spirit of understanding and with strength to face it. And mature people know this. Now, with that said, even if you succumb to temptation and even when you fail, Jesus still hears that prayer and he meets you with mercy. And he says, I still love you and I forgive you. My perfect obedience in the face of temptation covers over your failure. Now get up and live free. That's what Jesus says. Now, there's one more point, peace. We, we, we run from temptation. We, we rest in Christ. But then, quite honestly, we, we have to, like, relocate our lives. 
What I mean by that is if we're talking about a tempting person, what we need to do is, is reorient our lives so that this person who's trying to pull us into dark and destructive behavior has less of a powerful presence around us. And we've talked about this in, in each message in this series. This is the power of boundaries. Um, not, not putting up walls against toxic and tempting people or difficult people in general, but a boundary is more like a bridge. It's an invitation for this, for this unhealthy person to be in your life in a particular way. You're full of unhealth and you're trying to drag me into it, but, but I'm not going to let you drag me into it. I want you in my life, but you have to walk across this bridge where you're not tempting me into this thing, where you're not pulling me into this trap, where you're not, where you're not encouraging this poor behavior in me. Mature people understand in the face of temptation the power of boundaries and of life-giving community, of having other people in your life who bring out the best in you to balance out the people who are trying to bring out the worst in you. And so when I say relocate, it means rearrange your life so that there are more positive people around you and that there are some healthy boundaries in this unhelpful relationship. That's what I mean. So for example... Just hypothetically, uh, let, let's say that, you, that you're a young woman with a boyfriend. And this boyfriend is a man who's been in your life for several years, but he's a man that, that most everybody else that you respect and love in your life has a problem with. And they have a problem with him because what they see is you constantly compromising yourself for him. They see this person that they love, you, constantly lowering their standards to try and lift him up. And the truth is, they're right. You've bought into the lie that you can lift up this man by lowering your standards. And, and you might say, but, but Pastor Matt, I see the possibility of the man that he could become, and I see that, that maybe one day he could have the same faith as me, and one day he could follow Jesus like me. And I see all that he can become. And I want to be brutally honest with you, hypothetical young woman. He won't and you can't. He won't and you can't. Why would he ever change? He, he is not going to bow down to King Jesus because he's already got you bowing down to him. Why, why would he bow down to Jesus and become a different man when he's already got everything he's ever wanted? He's got you changing everything for him. You, you can't change him by lowering your standards. You're just going to get caught up in his shame and become like him. So here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to relocate your life. You need to like move out of his apartment you need to surround yourself with people who, who share your beliefs. You need to put up some boundaries in that relationship that align with, with the things you believe and the values that you have. And taking that drastic action, it may cause him to wake up. It may cause him to wake up and be like, I am totally wrong, but it may not. And if it doesn't, that's okay. Because at the very least, he won't have you to drag into his mess anymore. That's what we're talking about when we say relocate. We run from our sin. We rest in Christ and we relocate. In your life of faith, there are three kinds of people. There are people, who, there are people who push you, people who pull you, and people who are passive with you. What I mean by that is this. There are some people in your life who push you closer to Jesus. Their life and their faith and their influence is ultimately good for you. They push you closer to Jesus. 
And then there are other people in your life who are actively, with the life that they live and the things that they say and the things they do, they are pulling you from Jesus. They pull you away from the hope and the promises that you have in him and the person that you want to be. And then there are people who are passive. Your life actually influences them for good or for bad. There are, there are pullers, there are pushers, and there are passives. What you need are more people in your life who push you to Jesus than people who pull you from him. And when you have more people in your life who push you towards Jesus than who pull you from him, you then not only, not only are, are, are safer in the life that God has called you to live, but you, you have a much more positive influence around all the passive people around you, uh, like your family and your kids or, or your friend at work who's watching you and seeing how you live your life. What do you need to do in your life so that you have more people who, who, are, who are pushing you towards Jesus? Relocate, rearrange. And it may mean for you that you, you need to get more involved here. That the body of Christ exists for this purpose. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says this, In the body of Christ we bear one another's burdens and so we fulfill the law of Christ. Perhaps for you it means that you need to get more involved in this place so that there are people around you who share your beliefs and share some of your values, who have stories that can influence the story you're living, who have scars that can keep you from some of the troubles that you're tempted to jump into. That can come by being involved in a, in a Bible study group. It can come by being involved in a serving team. But, but I think that at the very least, if you're not connected into a community of faith, you're making it harder on yourself to have the number of people in your life pushing you to Jesus that you really need. I'll close with this. And this is not just a good way to close today's message, but to close out this series. You and I, we were made for joy, but we often settle for junk. Especially in relationships. Now, you might say, Pastor Matt, we're called to love broken people. Yes, we are. We're called to love broken and difficult and dysfunctional people with everything that we have to pour out and give and give and give. But there's a difference between loving and pouring out for their well-being and doing so to your own detriment and destruction. We are called to love people freely, but not foolishly. And that's what this series has been about. You are called to live life with a joy you did not earn and a peace you don't deserve. What do you need to do in your life in terms of relationships so that you can walk more regularly in that joy and in that peace? May you do those things. May you make those changes so that you might have that joy and know a little more of that peace and so that those people around you who need it too might find it and see it in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us into this place. Help us to connect deeply into, into this house of worship so that we might be surrounded with people who share our heart and our hopes and our dreams. People who can, who can push us toward you when the rest of the world is pulling us away. 
For my friends who are struggling to make a connection in this place, we pray that you would open up that pathway and give them more life-giving relationships here at St. Mark. And for those who are feeling the pull of temptation right now, we pray that you would strengthen them. Help them to run from it, to rest in Jesus, and to make whatever changes are necessary so that they might know the peace and the joy that is theirs in him. Amen.